This podcast is brought to you by BMJ Best Practice. BMJ Best Practice offers evidence-based, continually updated and practical knowledge that will help you make better clinical decisions. Hello and welcome to this BMJ Best Practice podcast on cluster headache. Kieran Walsh is my name. I'm clinical director at BMJ. The prevalence of cluster headache is about 1 in 500. In people coming to a headache clinic, the prevalence can be as high as 10%. And the headaches are excruciating and incapacitating and affect quality of life. So it's important that we get the diagnosis and management of this condition right. To give us more details about this problem and what we can do about it, we have on the line Professor Amal Starling, Associate Professor of Neurology at the Department of Neurology in the Mayo Clinic. So Amal, you're welcome. Let's start off by asking, what exactly is cluster headache? First of all, thank you so much for having me here because like you said, this is such an important diagnosis that unfortunately still has about six years of misdiagnosis before we get to the correct diagnosis. So what is cluster headache? These headaches are recurrent headache attacks that are lasting for minutes and sometimes up to a couple hours of extremely excruciating severe pain. They only occur on one side of the face, typically behind the eye, and they are also associated with these very prominent cranial autonomic features, specifically droopiness of the eye, ptosis, constriction of the pupil, meiosis, or also tearing of the eye, redness of the eye, facial swelling and redness, and then agitation or restlessness during these attacks. Okay, thank you. Let's dive straight into diagnosis. How do you actually make the diagnosis? So with the majority of headache disorders and cluster headache is very similar, the diagnosis is a clinical diagnosis. The characteristics that we're looking for is that these are shorter lasting headache attacks compared to the more common headache disorders such as tension type headache or migraine where those attacks or symptoms will last for greater than four hours. With cluster headache attacks, the attacks last from 15 minutes to about three hours. And an individual may have one to eight of these attacks throughout the course of a 24-hour period. Again, they are side-locked, only occurring on one side. In migraine, unilateral pain is common. However, It kind of radiates to the other side. Sometimes it can encompass the whole head, whereas in cluster, it is by rule only on one side of the head and typically around the first trigeminal distribution. So around the eye or right behind the eye, sometimes right here at the frontotemporal region as well. Again, this is the most severe pain often described as the most severe pain known to humankind. In fact, women with cluster headache have described that the pain during a cluster attack is more severe than childbirth. Now, that other prominent feature are those autonomic features. 
where people will have tearing of the eye, redness of the eye. Um, people can even have uh, congestion on that same side of the face where they have pain. They'll have nasal congestion out of that one nostril or tearing or uh, rhinorrhea out of that one nostril. And then that restlessness or agitation is also a part of the diagnostic criteria. And these episodes that people will have multiple attacks every day are also called cycles. And the cycles for most individuals will last about eight weeks. And then they will have a period of time where they're not having these cluster attacks. That's the most common episodic cluster headache that people will have. Some people may have chronic, which of course means they're having these continuous attacks on a daily basis. Now, one of the interesting features about cluster that should help with diagnosis is that they have this circadian periodicity where they will occur on a certain time period on a daily basis, often, unfortunately, after sleep onset. So many patients will report attacks that occur a couple hours after they have gone to sleep. So maybe, um, you know, at midnight or one or two in the morning, and it'll be every day where they'll have attacks around that time. And interestingly, there's also a seasonal periodicity to the cycles where often in the changes of season. So in fall or spring, people will have a cycle of cluster attacks. Okay, fantastic. And I guess to state the obvious, hence the name, cluster headaches, they occur in clusters. Exactly. Great, fantastic. Thank you. And are there any groups of the population that are have risk factors for cluster headaches? Any typical patient? Yes, and those things can provide like supporting um, features for your diagnosis. So In comparison to migraine, which actually has a female predominance, cluster actually has a male predominance. So the ratio has changed a bit over time. It used to be thought that it was much more common in men than females. However, um, that has um, come down to about a two to one or three to one ratio favoring men. Also, individuals who are smokers seem to be more susceptible to onset of cluster headache. And interestingly, studies have shown that even passive exposure to smoking may predispose individuals to developing cluster headache. There's also a high comorbidity with sleep apnea. Um, In fact, in some studies, up to 80% of people with cluster headache have some form of sleep apnea. So those things, if present, can also support a potential diagnosis. Okay, thank you. Let's move on to tests or investigations. What what tests, if any, should you do? Yeah, so this is a really important topic because in the most common headache disorders, which are tension-type headache and migraine, again, clinical diagnosis. And if people have a very typical Um, clinical diagnosis with a normal physical examination and neurologic exam, no additional testing is typically recommended. However, cluster is different. When someone presents with a cluster headache phenotype, meaning they clinically fit the diagnosis, those individuals do have a higher risk of having a secondary 
headache disorder, meaning something else that is causing these symptoms. So I recommend that for every person for whom you're suspecting cluster headache, that we do additional testing. The additional testing includes neurovascular imaging. So if it's clinically possible, if there's no evidence of a pacemaker, then doing an MRI of the brain with and without contrast with very thin cuts and high resolution imaging through the pituitary gland, as well as through the brainstem to get a really good view of any structures that are potentially compressing the trigeminal nerve. In addition, doing vascular imaging with an MRA of the head and neck, again, because things like a cervical artery dissection has been associated with cluster headache or vascular compression of the trigeminal nerve has been associated with um, cluster headache presentations. And so those are important to do to rule out a secondary cause. I'll also get a sleep study if someone does not have already diagnosed sleep apnea, given the high comorbidity of sleep apnea with cluster headache. Okay, thank you. What would you say are the common pitfalls in diagnosis? So the most common pitfall in diagnosis is that there is not enough awareness that cluster headache is even an entity. And when someone presents to your office with severe headache, typically people will jump to migraine simply because it is the most common headache disorder for which people will present to a doctor for. Tension type headache is more prevalent than migraine. However, it is mild to moderate in severity, so people are not always presenting to a physician. But the most common headache disorder where people will present to a physician would be migraine. However, it should be really easy to differentiate cluster from migraine with a couple questions. One, how long are your attacks? Greater than four hours? Likely migraine. Less than four hours? Let's think about cluster. Also, this restlessness or agitation. During a cluster attack, people with an attack will walk around the room. I've even had a patient who has punched a hole in the wall in my office, not because there were anything negative of a person, but simply because of this extreme restlessness and agitation that occurs during an attack. They can't sit still. They're pacing around the room. In comparison, during an attack in migraine, someone will be as still as possible, not moving around. Now, those autonomic features can also be a bit confusing. Because in migraine, people may also have tearing or a runny nose or congestion, but it'll typically be on both sides. Whereas in cluster, it will be unilateral and ipsilateral to the side of the side locked pain. Okay, got it. Thank you. Let's move on to management. What's the mainstay of management of cluster headache? So for the management of cluster headache, we separate management into management of the individual attacks, which is called acute management. And then there is transitional treatment, which is something that we'll use to try to shorten that cycle of cluster headache attacks. And then also preventive treatment options or maintenance treatment options with the goal of reducing the severity as well as the frequency of attacks during that cycle. So for acute treatment of those individual attacks, 
one of the mainstays of management is actually high flow oxygen using a non-rebreather mask and high flow is 12 to 15 liters per minute. The other evidence-based treatment options include sumatriptan sub-Q injections. Remember, these are fast onset and also shorter duration. So we really need to use injection therapies or nasal sprays. Zolmatriptan or a sumatriptan nasal spray also has a good level of evidence for the treatment of individual attacks. Now for transitional treatment options, oral steroids is typically the mainstay to try to shorten a cycle of cluster headache attacks. And then suboccipital steroid injections, usually with some anesthetic as well. So a suboccipital nerve block with steroids has a high level of evidence to also be useful for shortening a cluster cycle. And then for maintenance therapy, interestingly, there are not many medications that have a high level of evidence. However, our mainstay of, of maintenance therapy is the oral verapamil medication. And this is to be um, the immediate release formulation dosed three times a day. And often we have to slowly titrate up to pretty high doses of this medication. Other maintenance options are also lithium, melatonin, and then there are some newer available options too, which are stimulation devices and other injection therapies. Thank you. What are the main pitfalls in management, would you say? So again, I'll talk about the pitfalls in acute transitional and maintenance therapy. One of the main pitfalls in acute therapy, especially when oxygen is being used, is two liters nasal cannula isn't going to work. It has to be high flow oxygen, usually using a non-rebreather mask. And then with the triptan medications like sumatriptan and zolmatriptan, using an oral triptan is simply not going to have a fast enough onset. So you really need to use the sumatriptan sub-Q injection or at least the sumatriptan or zolmatriptan nasal spray. Now, with the transitional treatment, the main pitfall is that people are may not be using a high enough dose of steroids because, of course, there are risks to using high-dose steroids, and then also the taper may not be as long. One of the common fit pitfalls with that is there's a, a steroid like Medrol dose pack, um, which is six days of steroids um, and definitely not at a high enough dose. That won't be effective. We typically, for cluster based on evidence, are starting at prednisone 100 milligrams for five days and then decrease by 20 milligrams every three days thereafter. So it's about a 17 to 20 day taper, starting at a pretty hefty dose. Sometimes we'll use a proton pump inhibitor to help coat the lining of the stomach and let people know what are the short-term side effects of steroids. It's not gonna be for a long period of time, so you're able to avoid those longer-term side effects. And then with maintenance therapy, the most common pitfalls that I see with verapamil is that people will use the controlled release formulation and not dose it three times a day. And so you really using the immediate release formulation is what is recommended by neurologists and headache specialists and to make sure it's dosed three times a day. 
You do want to get an EKG before you start for Apamil because of um, making sure an individual does not have a first degree um, AV block. And then some patients do require a pretty high dose of verapamil. Um, so I may get a patient who has not received adequate relief of their cluster, but the only thing I might change to get to good relief is actually increasing that dose of verapamil. The average therapeutic dose for cluster is 400 milligrams per day of verapamil. So it's a pretty high dose that we have to titrate to. And again, I get an EKG every time I do a dose increase to make sure that hasn't prolonged the PR interval. Okay, got it. Thank you. Um, last question, which is a question about questions, really. What other questions do you get asked about this condition? What have we missed? Yeah, so... One of the most common questions is what's new um, in the treatment of cluster? And there are multiple really exciting new developments. One is um, there are these CGRP monoclonal antibodies that have been uh, well-received for the treatment of migraine. There have also been studies that have demonstrated that some of these may be effective for cluster headache, specifically galcanezumab which is a CGRP monoclonal antibody, an injection that's administered once a month. The dose is different from, from migraine. It's 300 milligrams per month. And this is a good maintenance treatment option for a cluster headache that is newer. Another are stimulation. So there have been prior studies done looking at sphenopalatine ganglion stimulation but that's a more invasive procedure um, where people will have an implantable stimulation device that's stimulating the SPG ganglion. In fact, there are even older studies done where they've done deep brain stimulation, but of course the risks and comorbidities with that has not made that a very popular um, current day treatment option. But there is actually a non-invasive stimulation device that stimulates the vagus nerve. So non-invasive vagal nerve stimulation in some countries, such as the U.S., has received clearance for use for stopping individual attacks, as well as for maintenance therapy for episodic cluster headache. Okay, thank you very much, Shamal. And thanks to you all for listening. We hope that this has been helpful, and we hope you'll be able to put what you've learned into action to better diagnose and manage affected patients. If you want to find out more, click the link in the podcast to sign into BMJ Best Practice and have a look at the content on this and other relevant diseases. Thank you once again.